Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Midtown Atlanta, it's time for Top Docs Radio, brought to you by Medical Association of Georgia. With over 7,800 physician members, MAG is pleased to advocate on behalf of Georgia's patients and physicians. Visit mag.org and on Twitter at mag1849. Join the conversation on Twitter at Top Docs on BRX. What is up, Tanya Mack? Oh, we're trying to have a good time and learn a little something along the way, as we always are when we meet. And we're happy to have everyone with us today. How have you been? I've been great. Last time uh, you were out in the Desert. far west yes. cooking in 120 degree heat. Yes. Now we're just humid and cooking. I'm here very pleased <laughs> to have you back here in the studio. We'll be learning a little bit about genetics today. We are. We are actually going to be digging kind of deep into genetics because we, in general, are experiencing a genetic revolution. And I brought some experts into the studio today to help me learn a little bit more about the nuances of that. And we're specific. That's a pretty broad field genetics, but we're going to focus on medical diagnostics and testing that help us uh, make life better once we find out what the sequencing is and how we can help clinical diagnosis with, through genetic testing. So we have a company today here, and they're experts with us from MNG Laboratories. And let me introduce our guests. I'll start with Trey Langley. Trey, welcome. Thank you. And Trey is the Vice President of Product Development for MNG Labs. And Trey is smart indeed. He has his PhD in microbiology from Emory, and he's responsible for new product development over time. Um, he's going to talk to us a little bit today about exome sequencing and carrier testing. Is that right, Trey? Sounds right. Sounds right. We'll get into it. So welcome. My next guest is Keith Highland. Keith, welcome. Welcome. Thanks for having me. And let me talk a little bit about Keith. He has his PhD in biochemistry. He's a geneticist. No, not, uh, you went from London. Can a clinical chemistry in a pediatric area, correct, Keith? Correct, that's right. Very good. And worked your way to the United States and went to work with Baylor, setting up a diagnostic lab for inherited metabolic diseases. And that was your focus for a little while, right? Uh, focus for 16 years. There you go. And then we... <laughs> and it's still ongoing. That's good. So he's going to talk to us a little bit about that. And he's been with MNG since 2008 and has an interest in neurotransmitted disorders. So you're going to dive into that with us today. Absolutely. Very good. And my last guest in the studio is Dr. Peter Nodge. And P uh, Peter is from Hungary, originally got his medical training in Hungary. He's a geneticist and biochemist, kind of took a segue into pathology and got into molecular genetics. Right, Peter? That's correct. And spent some time in Columbia University for five years and kindly found recently his way to Atlanta and came to work with MNG to carry on his research here, right? That's correct. Very good. So welcome all you guys. I am a layperson, so when I hear biochemistry and PhDs, I'm immediately intimidated. But I want to start at the beginning, and you can kind of bring me along. So Peter, why don't we start with you, and you kind of back up and tell us a little bit about genetics in general and how it's relevant to all of our daily lives. Genetics is a wonderful science and recently the tools have become so sophisticated that we truly uh, obtained the key to the user manual of our own body you know the human the human organism as it is we can basically flip through the pages and we can pick up parts and we can analyze 
what the fate holds for us because genetics is a bit of uh, a science of fate. The only real fate that you you have predisposed for is is what's in your DNA. The mutations and variants that you inherit from your parents, grandparents will pretty much uh, influence to a great degree your health history, the kind of diseases you might succumb to, and also, uh, you know, what are the mutations that you might give to your children, maybe affect their health. People spend a lot of money and effort going to fortune tellers to, to learn about their future, but really uh, that money could be better spent uh, actually finding out about your own DNA and what are the, the, the variants that you carry and how those might affect your health and the health of your descendants. Mm-hmm. So Trey, your lab, MNG Laboratories, really specializes in uncovering the genetic data Um, specifically trying to affect the diagnostic capability and then ongoing into the treatment plan of a patient that you're testing for. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your lab, how it's set up, what kinds of things you guys do, where your clients are, kind of the nuts and bolts of MNG. Absolutely. So we're a CLIA and CAP accredited lab right here in Atlanta. We perform complex biochemical molecular testing to aid in the diagnosis of inherited disorders ranging from mitochondrial diseases, epilepsy, intellectual disability to muscular dystrophies and um, fetal abnormalities. Mm -hmm. And so our clients include large hospitals, universities, pharmaceutical companies, and others, both here in the United States and internationally. So you're global. We were talking about you have over 400 clients globally. We do. um, Domestically and internationally, we get a lot of of samples from Canada, also from the Middle East and Mm -hmm. areas such as that. So um, we perform testing, small small molecule analysis uh, to aid for the biomarkers for certain types of disorders. And we also perform a lot of sequencing, both single gene sequencing, and then we use next generation sequencing to perform a large number, approximately 100 disease-specific panels, and more recently, whole exome sequencing, where we can look at all of your genes to aid in the diagnosis of these disorders. Okay, very good. So it sounds like you guys are quite busy and things are coming and going every day. It's definitely an exciting place to be. You see new things every <laughs> you day. You do, yeah. I see it's probably uh, a, a speedy field right now and an evolutionary field as you're working in the research of that for sure. Why don't we, I heard you use the term genetic sequencing. Why don't we go back to Peter and why don't you specifically talk a little bit about genetic sequencing? Really what uh, I think the revolution that I described was due to is the development of so-called next generation sequencing. This sequencing basically allows uh, for uh, simultaneous identification or examination of hundreds of millions of molecules of DNA. So in practical terms, Basically, today we can sequence the entire human genome from the same cost and uh, maybe the same time as it took maybe five years ago to sequence a single gene. And I don't want to go into the the technical details of it, but uh, this technology um, has truly basically uh, overperformed our wildest expectations. There are some there are some issues, you know, with the interpretation. We we can read the entire genome, but we prefer to only interpret the parts that we have solid knowledge about. 
that basically what we refer to as whole exome sequencing, only sequence the parts of the genome where more disease-causing genes okay. are located. Okay, so if I'm understanding correctly, let's just start from the patient perspective. The patient's in some kind of setting where there's some indication that you're trying to uncover what the underlying disease or process is that you're working with. Um, the healthcare professionals on the patient side are going to get some kind of sample. Uh, we were talking off air, Keith, with you about uh, you guys frequently deal with cerebrospinal fluid. We do, yes. Okay. Um, that's, but that's, could it be blood or urine? Or mo Most of the genetic testing is done using whole blood. Okay. And we extract the DNA out of the whole blood, and then we do whatever test that's been ordered. Okay, so, so if they have a, I heard you mention muscular dystrophy. So if we're trying to figure out um, what that patient at the remote site to you has, they would actually get a sample, they would ship it to you, you would be doing the indication would be s s rule out muscular dystrophy and then you would be looking at specifically what material or what data is there and focusing on that part is that correct peter yeah that's correct okay. so you know there are many different types of muscular dystrophy and right. we have panels that cover most of the most commonly uh, mutated genes that cause these disorders once we have the data the dna sequence we, we sit down and uh, look through, you know, what are the mutations that best explain uh, the patient's condition. Okay, and then you report the data back. We'll talk a little bit more in depth about reporting, but in general, the reports go back to the ordering provider that's working with the patient. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. We okay. don't offer direct-to-consumer testing. Okay, because yeah, so I think that's a big patients. thing in the field of genetics. A lot of people we talk, we're talking about before we went on air, they just want to know or not know. Peter brought that up in his uh, segment as well. But for right now, you're a diagnostic lab that's working with clinicians to take samples in and try to do the, the testing to see what's underlying that and then report back on that indication. Right. And then just to expand a little bit on what Peter was mentioning with the whole exome sequencing. So we do offer disease-specific panels. For example, the muscular dystrophy panel you're speaking of has approximately 300 genes in it. And so those are genes that have been most closely associated with that type of disorder. However, there are times where you wouldn't detect something. It doesn't detect all of them. And there can be things that are in other genes that maybe people haven't found yet. And so that's where whole exome sequencing can come in, where you can look at all of your coding genes. So you have your whole genome, which is approximately 3 billion nucleotides, but 90% of the disease-causing variants are located in what's called your exome. And so that's the part of your genome that actually is the building blocks for your proteins. And that's where, again, Specific to you. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, common among everyone, but okay. specific to you, there can mm -hmm. be specific changes specific mm -hmm. to that patient. And so that's what we would look for. And so as far as the reporting goes, we do have a team experience team um, ranging from MDs to, um, to um, bachelor's levels that we meet several times a week and look at the data that we've found for these patients to try to determine what the most likely cause for the disorder mm -hmm. is. What is the background of those people? Because when I was actually visiting in your offices in your lab, um, it was they were banks of computers and banks of people trying to put the data together pre-reporting, I think. That's right. And so this team... Um, Currently, there are approximately six of us, seven of us involved in reporting, and we range from um, 
Peters and MD down uh-huh. to um, people who have a bachelor level, um, bachelor of science in biology, and then some laboratory experience. But a majority of them have at least their master's or a PhD in some sort of molecular genetics or human biology and some experience in the lab. Just out of curiosity, are there databases that you're researching or is it all the analytics of the in the skill of the person or all of that together? <laughs> There are databases. Perhaps Peter would like to expand okay. upon this. He's his database actually helps to interpret a lot of the variants that we're looking at. Well, you know, there are publicly available databases that are extremely useful, uh, Clinvar, OMIM, and so on. We do rely on those databases to some extent. We also rely on multiple other sources. Um, most importantly, our internal database. Uh, you know, MNG has been in this business for a while. We have over 5,000 samples mm-hmm. that we have sequenced with these kind of disorders. So that's a very important uh, source of information. In addition, we are also, uh, you know, when, when we find a variant where nobody has seen it before, every family has in the exome maybe 100 or 200 variants that nobody else really has except people in that family. And so, so for that, we, we use the parents who are either healthy or affected to rule in or rule out variants of importance. But if, if we are stuck and we cannot get information, then we have to dig in and we have to do some modeling to, to understand the change based on the physical properties of the protein. So we have a, a, a modeling team that basically in places the mutation into a, a structure uh, of of the protein in, in that we are examining and and looks what is the effect and also another uh, important aspect of our, our added value uh, is basically we think about these orders as, as diseases of systems rather than single genes we we have these networks between different genes that work together uh, on the protein level and uh, similar phenotypes in in and mutations in genes that work together you know they might they might indicate uh, pathogenicity or a benign nature of course of course if we don't have previous publication and multiple cases about a specific mutation we can report these out as variants of unknown significance you know with pathogenic features or or some mild text like that but generally we like to only report things that we do believe have something to do with the disease. Well, it's interesting as I'm listening to you, I tend to think of genetics prior to our discussion today as more black and white. Like you have a mutation, you don't. What I'm hearing you telling me is because of the infinite possibilities of coupling and changes in genetics, you're actually looking at a lot of new data and expanding your database from what you see. Yeah, so there's a lot of analysis work along with just the reporting of the black and white. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. We see everyday variants that we can't find anything reported about them previously. And so you can use predictive algorithms, mm-hmm. online databases, things modeling. like that to try and modeling to try to find mm-hmm. that. But that's a big part of where the neurochemistry part of our laboratory and the small molecule analysis comes in, where you can combine functional assays with the variant to try to determine if it's actually causing a consequence in the body. And so that's um, Keith's area of expertise. Yeah, so Keith, let's shift there. We've been talking about exome sequencing, but I know there's a whole different 
segment of testing that you're kind of heading up or the expert in in small molecule diagnosis. So why don't you introduce us to that topic? Sure. Um, and the two two areas are very complementary. Peter and Trey have been talking about these variants of unknown significance. And what our testing does, not in all uh, occasions, but in many cases, we can look at specific genes and where they find a variant that they don't understand. We have small biomarkers that allow us to look at the functionality of those particular genes in terms of their products or, or what they're forming. So we, I mean, I, I specialize in uh, neurochemistry and in particular in neurotransmitter disorders. And the neurotransmitters are the chemicals that basically uh, allow you to pass signals around different parts of the brain. Um, we uh, have 20 or 30 different tests that we do in different areas, but most of them are involved in um, looking at dopamine mm -hmm. and serotonin. Mm -hmm. um, they're kind of a cool area to work in, if you like, because... Um, those neurochemicals are involved uh, a lot in psychiatry, um, depression, um, Parkinson's disease, movement disorders, etc. And the pharmaceutical industry has been interested in those areas for, for years. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the nice thing about it is that they already have a massive repertoire of drugs that attack either the, the the preformation pathways for the neurotransmitters or the receptors where the neurotransmitters bind to. So that when we find particular defects, um, either from our small molecule work or from, from the uh, genetic component or the genetic diagno uh, diagnostics, we can target exactly or we can see exactly where in these neurotransmitter pathways that the disorder is and then we can go out and look in the from the pharmaceutical repertoire of drugs and say okay that drug that drug and that drug is quite likely to be very beneficial to these patients and we have found many cases now where we've had uh, really remarkable transformations of uh, children's lives there's there's particular disorders that are kind of similar to Parkinson's disease. Um, it's affecting the dopamine pathway. And prior to treatment, these kids are basically kind of locked in their own brains. They, uh, they're they missing dopamine. And um, they're normally wheelchair-bound. They have dystonia. So they can't control their muscles and mm -hmm. they're cramped and neck twists and all that sort of stuff. Um, normally they have to wear head protection and, and basically under constant care. If you give them uh, a, a pre-drug that basically forms dopamine in the body, they literally get up and walk out their wheelchair and they're basically 100% normal afterwards, which is a kind of a real nice area and very rewarding when you mm -hmm. find these patients. So what percent of your patients are pediatric versus adults from your samples that are coming in? Um, from the from the small molecule mm -hmm. neurochemistry side, I would say that eighty five percent are pediatrics. Yeah, mm -hmm. and we do a lot of work um, in seizure disorders as well. Mm -hmm. And and most of the small molecule diagnostic that we that we do is looking at um, treatable seizure disorders. I mean, there are lots of treatable seizure disorders that mm -hmm. respond to anticonvulsants, but these are specific disorders that actually prevent the disease so they, they can be cured with simple vitamins things like that vitamin b6 there's a very characteristic vitamin vitamin b6 
uh, responsive seizure disorder that uh, you can basically diagnose um, within a, a week of life. And if you treat them, they do very well. If you don't treat them, they do very badly. <laughs> Interesting. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to talk just a moment. And before we came on the air, we were talking about a lot of what you're doing is uh, research, not just the results of the test, but as you learn more data, you're actually uncovering more and more models and things to look at and that kind of thing. We were talking about your flexibility as a private lab compared to an academic institution. Can Keith, you or Peter talk a little bit about that? Well, I think it's very important uh, to understand that with exome sequencing and genome sequencing, the boundaries of research and medicine kind of became blurred. Mm -hmm. So in a way, for me, leaving Columbia, leaving academia, where I had my own lab, I was studying the genetics of ataxias and Alzheimer's disease. You know, for me to leave uh, the basic research, it wasn't so difficult because in reality, when you do this kind of testing, you're continuing to do basic mm -hmm. research. You're learning. Mm -hmm. You are learning every day. You are basically, in a way, you are looking at the disruptions. You are the one who discovers the causes of these disorders. And, and of course, we are a bit limited in exploring the mechanisms, but, you know, other people we collaborate with are willing to do that. So, so we are sort of the pioneers. We're going uh, through the jungle of the genes and, and discover new, interesting changes. And then we work with our colleagues back in academia and mm -hmm. try to figure out what the mechanism is. Mm -hmm. But often, whether uh, a mutation causes a disease or not, you don't need to know the mechanism. Mm -hmm. And so, in a way, we are going to work every day real excited because every day is a, is a, is a, we have about you know, 20, 30 patients to review. And so we, we have some really interesting novel insights every day into some aspects of neuromuscular biology and pathology. Mm -hmm. Before we go a little deeper into the reporting of the results, I'd like to, one of you to talk a little bit about the speed. Like we've talked about genome sequencing, exome sequencing, small molecule diagnostics. How fast are things moving? I mean, would we have had a lot of this available? I mean, the Genome Project years back kind of introduced the public to the idea that we could unravel DNA and look at it on a personal level, not just on the general scientific knowledge of it. But I would expect that what you're seeing, because there's a newness to it as you go to work every day, things are moving pretty fast. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the Human Genome Project explored the, the human genome of, uh, of a human who never really existed. Mm -hmm. It was a mixture of a number of people's DNA. And it was a single uh, or, or, you know, a mix of a few people's genome. But what really brought on the revolution is the technology that allows you to sequence an individual person's genome overnight, pretty much. And so that allows you to see the diversity of humanity. You know, there are close to maybe 7 billion of us on this planet. And so the human genome is 3 billion base pairs. So there are probably about two people for every mutation that can occur in the human genome. And you see those phenotypes. And 
And basically the revolution is collecting as much of that data as possible and figuring out which are those variants that we can live with and you are perfectly okay if you have them and which are those variants that you are not okay with. So one aspect of my, my efforts when I was at Columbia to basically use as controls older senior citizens who had a really good quality of life, so-called successful agers or, or super agers, and, and see what, what is the variation set that's present in them. Mm-hmm. And then if somebody can live to 90 and have a nice discussion with you, you know, probably those variants are not cause of some, some really severe intellectual disability in a child. They can be <laughs> because, you know, there is a mix of genes. It's not mm-hmm. just a single gene doing everything on its own. There are different combinations that can cause disease, but that's a very unexplored area and we don't really understand that kind of genetic interaction yet. But yes, so the big deal is that we need to acquire more data and we have to have a better understanding of biology, better curation of our, our data sets, better data sharing. So if we discover something, you know, a laboratory laboratory at the other end of the world would immediately know that we suspect this being a disease-causing variant. So, so I think that's pretty much the direction in which the field will go. And of course, there are new technologies that we hear about every day, single molecule sequencing, which would allow sequencing really long stretches of DNA instead of currently sequencing three, 400 base pairs at max, we will be able to sequence 10,000 base pairs, let's say, or 20,000 base pairs. And this will allow us to diagnose conditions that are due to uh, not single nucleotide changes, but repeat expansions where the length really matters. Mm-hmm. So currently that's a, that's a really largely yet unexplored mm-hmm. area of, of disease and of our understanding of the genetic causes of disease. Okay, let's back up a little bit. We've talked a little bit about the process in the lab and what happens in the lab. Now, let's pretend I'm a patient on the other end or a clinician and I'm waiting to hear the results. I know that depending on the type of sample that you get and the type of testing you're doing and the panel you're doing, there's probably quite a bit of variety in terms of when I might hear back, what I might hear back, what that whole process is. Trey, do you want to start talking about? Right. So we do have you? tests ranging, ranging from single gene sequencing, where our turnaround time is two weeks or less, to mm-hmm. the small panels where it can be four to six weeks. Mm-hmm. And then the whole exome, which we've been turning around really rapidly, it's about two weeks or so at this point. And mm-hmm. so we do get results out very quickly. Um, and Is then, that normal for your industry or is that kind of fast for it's, your industry. It's something we've been working hard on as a company. And I think that mm-hmm. our turnaround times are faster than some of our competitors. Okay. And so that's something we pride ourselves on. And so basically deciding what we report, meeting to decide that. So as I mentioned earlier, we do have an annotation team where we meet several times a week. We look at all of the variants that we found in someone and try to discuss based on all of the information we have, either Um, Have we seen it in patients before with a similar clinical presentation? Has anybody reported it in the literature? Um, What do predictive programs online say about it and things like that? And so we take that all into account. And the clinical presentation of a patient is very important. So, for example, 
if you have a 50-year-old and you find a variant and that gene is known to cause early infantile disorders, well, that's pretty strong evidence that, as Peter mentioned, that it's not necessarily causing this patient's disorder, although it could be contributing, as you mentioned. So it sounds like most most people thinking about healthcare um, testing would think in terms of a standardized profile, right? Like I get my blood tested, it's got my electrolytes and blood cells and all this kind of stuff in a standard format. You're talking about the opposite of that. You're talking about each person's different. We have analysis going in. We're going to decide what the line is that we see and report and what is irrelevant and it's more customized. Am I getting the idea of that right? There are I, there are definitely variants that you see that have been found in lots of different people, and those have been well studied and well characterized. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you find that 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 is going to cause a certain mm-hmm. disorder, but we do run into pretty much every day variants that we can't find anything about them. And so mm-hmm. then we use um, the neurochemistry testing, small molecule analysis, and then some other assays or tests that we have in the lab to try to help figure out what those variants of unknown significance and are. And if I'm doing. the clinic, if I'm the MD that sent you the, spe- the specimen, will I understand what you're sending me back? I mean, to what level, how does it come back to me as the provider taking care of that patient? Right. So we take a lot of pride in our reports and okay. being able to communicate clearly what we have found in patients. And if there's something that we just can't say anything about, we'll write that in the report, report tell them everything we can say about it, but say, look, there's nothing definitive about this particular variant. Or there's a paper that said that it isn't likely to be causing this, or it is likely to be causing it, and the evidence that they said in that. So we try to communicate on a level that physician can explain to the patients what we found. And so, and we're also, all of us at this table are available by phone. So we do spend time. I was going to ask if they ever call you back directly. We do. So we spend um, varying amounts of time on the phone pretty much every day discussing with physicians, genetic counselors, the results that we found and what exactly they mean and what the next level of testing might be to help clarify a result that we find. Peter, do you have anything to add about that? Yeah, so, you know, we are all individuals, you know, and uh, we all carry these rare variants. And uh, that's basically what's behind the concept of precision medicine or personalized medicine. Mm-hmm. Different people like different terms. That is that is the beauty of this field, that we have to synthesize what's available knowledge, you know, in databases, what's available knowledge about the biology, and what's available knowledge about the patient's disease. And that's why it's hugely important that the clinicians understand that the better history they give us and Mm -hmm. the better they describe the phenotype of the patient, the more valuable and more easily usable report they they get back. Because it allows allows us, you know, the good history good personal history and good family history uh, allows us to basically do the, the, the clinician's job in a way and pre-sort, pre-select those variants that are most likely to cause the specific condition that so they deal with. When they send you the samples, do you get uh, the medical records or genetic pedigree or what do you get as far as data with the sample? We, we can, uh, I'll take that one. It's, it can be anything from nothing to six pages of history. Okay. And we hate it when it's nothing because it really makes our job hard. <laughs> yeah. So the, the more, it, and when we find interesting variants, it's, it's, we're not always having, we try and actually contact the physician and then 
try and get some clinical history which will allow us to help determine what's going on. Okay. With the when we move on to the exome, it it makes life a little bit easier because we actually ask for the patient sample themselves. And Peter mentioned before that we also want the mother and father or closely related relatives, because that allows us to track down who has that variant and who hasn't, and who's got clinical symptoms and who hasn't. That's why I and, wondered if you get a pedigree, you know, yeah. like the genetic pedigree. Sometimes we do, okay. and it certainly helps what we do. Okay. But I said with exome, if we can get the parents as well, we can find a variant that maybe is in all or in two of them, one one parent and one child, but the father who carries it is normal mm-hmm. and the child has one copy of it and is abnormal, mm-hmm. then that just immediately tells us that's not likely to be a problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, well Are- the family history is hugely important and 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 the complete family history. I mean I want to mention a case where uh, there were uh, two siblings uh, who both developed a severe, uh, lethal type of untreatable kind of uh, cran- cancer. And so, you know, the parents finally um, came with the second child who was still alive at that time. They came to Colombia and uh, we did genetic testing and we, we basically uh, discovered that both parents carry mutations to a cancer-predisposing disease the child basically lacks any ability to repair any damage in his DNA that occurs, you know. So in this case, knowing knowing that, you know, the kids were affected in a certain way and knowing a family history that, you know, people had a tendency to develop cancer in that family previously, although nobody really thought of it much, you know, really helped to, to find the actual cause of the kid's condition. Mm-hmm. So the more, yeah, and these days, I know in my business, we do high-risk obstetrics and we do a lot of antenatal testing. So we're able to take a, back it up and look at pre-birth. Occasionally, if there is a reason to look where there's an indication on ultrasound or something that we see, it gives us a clue to take a closer look. So I appreciate that. I know that um, genetic testing is becoming more and more a term that's used in the general community, in healthcare, it's in media, in the world of internet shrinks the world. Um, We are seeing genetic advertising. We are seeing things on TV. We're seeing it in social media. Peter, do you want to talk a little bit about the TV ads promoting genetic testing and how that compares to MNG? Yeah, so... So the, the the genetic testing that you see advertised, and I don't want to mention company's name, mm-hmm. but um, they are in in some ways limited to report out variants that uh, about your hair color, about your eye color, about your your skin tone, and uh, you know this sort of thing. They they are not really authorized to give you uh, information about the cause of a disease. So most people who who submit DNA for those kind of companies uh, directly without a doctor's supervision. Uh, they just sort of want to have some sort of recreational like ancestry. genetics. Yeah, yeah, they they want to know their ancestry. Right. And that sort of Not thing. so much their health history. And usually they are healthy. Mm-hmm. They, they don't ask for an answer to a disease that they have. Mm-hmm. So we test patients, we test people who are seriously ill most of the time. Although we do uh, offer carrier screening in, for certain conditions. But most of the patients who send their samples to us are, are 
significant, have some significant disability or disease. Mm -hmm. So with that, they have a, a, a physician who oversees them. And so we communicate through the physician. I think it's very important that we, do, we don't report back results to the patients themselves. It is highly complicated uh, information, very difficult to interpret, you know, and, uh, and the internet is full of information that is at best hard to synthesize, but often incorrect or outdated or plain wrong. And so, so leaving somebody to deal with, you know, genetic data that actually is determining, you know, long-term planning about life and uh, life and death issues is, is, I think, best left in the hands of a professional. So we, we don't want to leave the patient alone with that kind of Well, and your focus in your lab is pretty much diagnostic, um, trying to, in the clinical arena, not necessarily just the hereditary um, yeah, the ancestry type lineage. That's correct. I mean, we do not report out lineage. Mm-hmm. We we obviously could if we wanted uh, learn those things, and sometimes we we do inform ourselves about the ethnic background just so that we can know if if that kind of disease is more common in that ethnic background or not, or or uh, you know differentiate pathogenic from non pathogenic mutations. Some some rare mutations just happen to be, you know, really rare because they are very common in some distant land. And uh, so we, we do want to have some sort of ethnic information. Okay. Very good. Well, we just have a few minutes left. I know it seems like we just sat down, but we're almost at the end. I'd like to kind of wrap up by talking a little bit about where your lab sees itself kind of evolving, Trey, your product development. Why don't you take that question about where are you heading? Yeah, it's a very exciting area to be in. Lots of new technologies every day, cutting edge um, instruments and things always coming on the market. And so as much as we've talked about sequencing, how great it can be, Mm -hmm. there are types of variants or types of aberrations in your DNA that are not readily picked up by today's current technologies. And so we're constantly looking to improve the tests that we offer to pick up large deletions, duplications, which are not readily picked up by sequencing, or also copy numbers, so um, carrier panels, as Peter mentioned, where we can advise potential parents on whether or not they're highly um, disposed to have a predisposed to have a child with a certain disorder. And also um, looking at the repeat expansions that Peter mentioned earlier that also are not picked up readily by the current technology. And so along those lines, we're always trying to improve what we have. Uh, we just switched our new mitochondrial DNA testing from an old technology to a newer technology that's more sensitive and allows us to look more carefully and detect lower levels than what we could detect before. So it's really exciting. We have lots of new things on the horizon. And Peter, where do you feel? You, you mentioned briefly earlier about the field that you're in, not just necessarily your lab, but what you're kind of seeing as a direction going into the future for this genetic revolution? Yeah, I mean, um, obviously the two are related. You know, I'm trying to take the company in the direction into which the whole field is going and just a bit faster than, than others. I think the real focus is on improving and increasing the information content of our exome reporting. Uh, and that that is really linked to uh, packaging 
more uh, different kind of tests into an exome report. So, for example, we don't only report out on nuclear genes, but we also report out with the exome on mitochondrial genes. So that's a combination that few labs actually do because because the two uh, genomes, the mitochondrial genome and the nuclear genome, require different type of uh, capture methods. Then we also uh, incorporate copy number reporting into our panels at this point. And a lot of laboratories are not yet offering that. So that's, that's again, another uh, way to improve the information content. So mm-hmm. you don't only detect a single type of mutation, but multiple different types mm-hmm. of mutation. And, and in this uh, category also, we, we package our trinucleotide repeat expansion uh, testing with our exome and with our panels. So again, to give, give a single step, sting, single stop shop for the clinician mm-hmm. who really wants to get to the bottom of the problem mm-hmm. of the patient. And so I think that's really where the field is going too, you know, trying to increase the rate at which we can provide a patient with a diagnosis. Currently, the traditional cytogenetics tests uh, and sequencing tests identify maybe up to 20% of, of uh, the cause of the disease for kids with genetic disorder. And exome sequencing adds another 20-30%, but we still probably have another 50% where we will not find a cause that we can reliably assign the, the phenotype to. And so that's really the, the holy grail of the field to find the genetic cause of those disorders. Mm-hmm. So or, we still or have establish- a ways to go. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and, and the most important, I think, block in our way is that currently we can only obtain short reads. Mm-hmm. And so reading long Longer stretches sequences. of DNA will definitely be tremendous help. And then just acquiring larger number of normal controls will help to automate the process, make it faster, reduce the false positive rates that we report mm-hmm. out and make increase the sensitivity and specificity of our uh, detection. Very good. Well, that's exciting news for all of us as we move more and more into um, more knowledge and more specific knowledge and things that will directly help us with our healthcare in the future. So, Trey, do you have anything to eat, add before we sign off? No, I just want to say thank you very You're much welcome. for having You're welcome. It's been a pleasure having you. Uh, thank you. Keith, very yep. nice to have you here. Peter, thank, thank you. you so much. So, CW, we're done at the end. This has been quite a revolution <laughs> indeed. I think some of this has been over my head and actually changed my thinking about what these guys do. And um, it's interesting that we have these kind of capabilities that yeah, we, we, a generation ago, weren't we wouldn't have probably had much of the conversation. They're certainly not going away. The, this type of test and, and its information, obviously, we're going to continue to refine it. I'll be interested to see if we get down to a point where we can actually do some predicting about the level of expression. If you find a, a variation on the genetic code, what is, what is the extent to which it'll be expressed? That's one of the reasons why, as Peter was talking about, we don't really like to put information in the hands of patients directly with their whole genetic code that says you, you might have a variant that could lead to heart disease, but yes. the patient gets stressed out and now it's not going to be expressed and they worried for nothing. So right. yeah. it'll be interesting to see exactly how yeah. far they can go with it. Yeah, that's an important point. We do not report susceptibilities. Mm-hmm. 
the only report uh, mutations yeah. that almost certainly greater right, than, right. than 80 percent certainty will actually result in a disorder and also we do most of our testing on people who already have the disease right so before, before we leave i want to give the opportunity to these guys to let them tell us how to get a hold of them at the lab or what kind of how, what's the best way to reach you guys if people have questions as we leave the audience um the simplest way to get at us is via our website um, we have a, a, a an easy access uh, HIPAA compliant portal that okay. allows people to ask questions or ask each individual one of us, you know. Okay, and the website What's, is? It's mnglabs.com. mnglabs.com. Look it up. Everybody can find something new there and get a little bit more of education there. So, again, thanks, CW, for having us today in the studio. And thanks to all three of you for being our guests today to talk about the genetic revolution. And if you've been checking out the show today and you've not done so already, get familiar with Women's Telehealth. They're our partner here in the show. They've been bringing us awesome guests twice a month, and they provide that access to the maternal fetal specialist for medical practices and hospitals in need of that. So uh, we really appreciate partnering with Tanya and her team at uh, Women's Telehealth. If you've not done so already, go to the upper left-hand corner of the show page. The Apple logo there will take you to the Top Docs Radio Show podcast, and you can subscribe to us. That way, each week when the new episode comes out, it'll be downloaded straight to your device, ready for you to listen to whenever it's convenient for you. And we hope you turn around and share this information with your social media networks. You might might just put some information in the hands of somebody that you care about that makes a big difference for them and their lives. So we'll say thanks in advance for that. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure having you come and share your information. It was very intriguing. Thank, Thank you. you. Tanya, I guess we'll see you we'll see here you. in a couple of weeks you or so. Will. Yes, we will. Everybody out there, we'll look forward to catching up with you same time, same place next week. We'll Have see a you great then. afternoon. 